Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be easier? C, A, G, B, R, 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 A,
porn films. Ooh. Helping me infiltrate this grim and nefarious world as well is comedian and all-round good egg, Alex Leem. Alex, thank you very much for joining me on the journey to True Cage Nirvana. How are you? Hello, thank you. I'm good, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, think of me as your Joaquin Phoenix in all of this. <laughs> you are my Alex California to my uh, Tom, my Daryl Wells. That has a ring to it. I like that. Well, it's 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 a great name. Um, I think you just add any American state to the end of your name and you've suddenly got an incredible amount of pizzazz. Hmm. I was thinking around. I'm just trying to think of any if any state really drags it down, but no, no. Even Arkansas has pizzazz. Yeah, I mean Alex Arkansas. I was thinking Daryl Alabama. I mean that's Ooh. just lovely to say. Ah, how's the skiffle band, Daryl Alabama? <laughs> We're still strumming. Good, good. S- still strumming. Now I've put myself on the spot trying to think of American states, and we've just come out of the U.S. presidential election. Um, mm. Alex, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's not bad. Darren, I'm, 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 yeah, that's that's got like a ring of sort of a, a really deep crime author. <laughs> this, there's a there's a random name generator in there. Um, Southern Gothic crime name generator. Put your name and a random US state, and you'll get at least a four book deal and a five film deal from Netflix. I reckon with that one. Talk talking of. Uh, uh, really dark and deep crime, Daryl, Florida. Uh, <laughs> let's let's talk eight millimeter. Eight millimeter. Well, um, this this was a cage film for me that I'd I knew the name of it, but I hadn't seen it until uh, this came up, and you very kindly agreed to watch the film with me. Um, it wasn't on my initial radar of Nicholas Cage films when you when you think of Cage. This is one of those that I think is quite easy to slip under the radar um so I, I don't know in terms of yourself and um dare i ask broadly here your history with cage as we lead into this or what is what is your uh, i suppose history with cage your thoughts on the man and as we talk about eight millimeters what was your personal favorite cage film be if you have one well, I mean, my, my history with Cage, and, and, and don't just this too harshly, it's because I've got a really, really short attention span with films, just mm-hmm. full stop. Uh, so you name it, I've not seen it. <laughs> um, I, I tend to be sort of like more of a, a sitcom binge watcher because I can just do half-hour chunks, and that that's about my attention span, is half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my Cage film, having seen sort of back catalogue, is very limited. If anything, I'm more familiar with Nicolas Cage memes than yeah. I am Nicolas Cage films. So I, my, my the, the Cage films that I have seen, you can count on one hand, it's Face Off, Leaving Las Vegas, and Peggy Sue Got Married. Wasn't expecting the third one on that to uh, round off your three. Neither was I. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was on one night, um, and I think I caught sort of like three quarters of it when, on this glorious summer where we had Sky Movies. Um, yep. And uh, then I thought, oh, that was all right. And then sort of like by accident saw the first sort of like quarter of the film. So sort of like pieced it all together. Um, so yeah, so it's a pretty limited. And I, I, I like to say eight millimeter completely slipped me by as well. I, I thought it was a Jason Statham film. So Sounds I like one about this beforehand. <laughs> well, I mean, with the three you've seen there, I mean, Leaving Las Vegas, a uh, great film for which he won uh, Academy Awards for, uh, for mm-hmm. Best Actor. Um, face off, I, f- I often find when you 
impress someone for the favorite Cage film. If it's not Con Air, it's Face Off. It's usually one of the two. Always a very mm. solid pick. Peggy Sue got married as well. Um, I've, it's been a while since I watched that, but and I don't know your memory of it. Um, I just remember Nicholas Cage made a choice, as he often does in his films, as you've probably seen in the memes, where he decided to put on a, a very high nasally voice. Um, apparently, he's co-starring Peggy Sue. Uh, not very happy with him for the majority of filming in that. Um, Try to get him off the film a few times, but ooh, that that'd be an atmosphere at work, wouldn't it? Well, I, I, I think um, with Cage, he's he's not one of the. And I say this with the greatest of respect. Um, with a lot of actors these days, stories come forward, uh, testimonies come out. I think as far as his backstory went, he had a few drunk days on that set and he stole a chihuahua at one point <laughs> during Peggy Sue got married. I thought you were going to say Cadillac or something, not chihuahua. Uh, that's the thing about Cage in his personal life as his acting choices. You just don't know where he's going to take you on this journey. Um, so I think I think by now, in our 2020 standpoint, he's uh, uh, in more ways than one sobered, not stealing as many small beasts as mm. he once did in his 80s heyday. But um, always, mm. always fascinating to see a lot of these behind the scenes stories, especially where Cage is concerned. Um, I'm just trying to think, the, 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 when, you, when you are stealing something, not that I have stolen anything, but it's it's for a reason for either getting the joy of nicking it and using it. What joy could you get out of two hours? Two hours are evil little shits. They're <laughs> horrible little things. And they start uh, whatever possessed. I, I have never been that drunk. But I think nicking a chihuahua is a good idea. Well, I mean, as, as a student, I've, I've taken a traffic cone or two, a stop mm -hmm. sign maybe, uh, the classic checklist of things. When I was in high school, okay, hands up, I once stole a chomp from the local corner shop just for the thrill because a few friends were doing it. I just wanted to get that buzz. But I retired at chomp, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to say, with things of uh, normal everyday worth. Not stolen an animal. Have I tried to entice no. a cat or two into my house? Yes, I have. But they've always gone outside afterwards. Maybe, maybe if when he was growing up, he had um, access to a Woolworths pick and mix uh, to, to get into yeah. his, his pocket. He, he might not have felt the need to take a chihuahua and a chomp yeah. instead. <laughs> I mean, it definitely shows those who had Woolworths growing up and mm. those who didn't. Um, and Nicolas Cage, did he have a prestigious film family in the Coppolas? Yes. Did he have a Woolworths? No. Again, just saying, I know which side of the, of the Woolworths Coppola divide. I would mm. rather be on myself. Uh, give me those little pink gummy bottles and a giant yellow-bellied snake any day of the week. Uh, well, I, I, my, my war was pick and mix nicking career lasted all two days. Uh, the second, because uh, I, I just started uh, college, um, and yep. yeah, money wasn't abundant, so going down to Woolworths and, and nicking pick and mix was was a bit of a thrill. So yeah, um, so on the second day uh, when I realised that the store detective was onto us. Um, I managed to get away with one of those miniature packets of fruit pastels. So yes, yes, I remember. Yeah, I thought sure I've got sugar, but at what cost? So. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it was just a chump for me. I might have also taken 
a curly whirly once I thought can I get away with Ooh. the longest chocolate the most awkwardly shaped chocolate that's brave. That's brave. Um, I remember it wasn't a smooth steel either it was I definitely just made eye contact with the side of the uh sort of the cashier's head as I just angled my own body about 45 degrees as I just grabbed it and was I was just waiting to get caught the whole time and to this day uh, 20 or so years later I'm um there's a guilt but all still a buzz that I've been trying to chase ever since that you just don't get elsewhere I find maybe I should be maybe I should have been stealing small animals the whole time and maybe we got about it sort of wrong maybe he was onto something I like to think that he was there's a there's there's a lot to Cage's methods and dare I say his madness that for me um I try not to question Cage Senpai on my personal journey to true Cage Nirvana maybe I will learn the ways along the way well, well knowing, knowing this now um kind of gives a bit more um weight to the urban legend that he once turned on the bath christmas lights interesting you say that because i heard yeah. this um it's conveniently a friend of a good friend of mine back from uh school and high school actually went to bath university the year this happened mm. uh, i hadn't gone to the university this year and nor had my other friend he'd said this to because he knew we were sort of like urban cage lovers even back then. Mm. And this was 2009, 2010, around 10 years ago. And I remember he came home, we were just having a walk, catching up, and he drops this story. He's like, uh, oh yeah, Nicholas Cage turned on the bath lights in uh, the Christmas lights in Bath immediately, as I think anyone else would have said. We were like, that's bullshit. You're a liar. It didn't happen. You're just saying this to get a reaction. He protested his innocence. Um, but I think it was actually true. I think this actually did happen. It got mentioned because I did one of those open bus tours when I visited Bath once and said, uh, and that's the house that Nicolas Cage bought when he was filming around here and he turned on the Christmas lights because somebody from the council thought they'd put an envelope through his letterbox knowing where he lived and invited him <laughs> to do it and apparently agreed. Uh, so knowing how, how whimsical he has been, nicking two hours, he probably just think, oh yeah, fine, yeah, Saturday night, yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I'll do it. Well, it's not every day you get an invitation to turn on your town's Christmas lights. But um, apparently on the back of that, though, he is a notorious Anglophile. He loves England. He's got uh, a deep passion for the history, especially uh, Glastonbury. I was uh, had Danny Hyde on last week, and he was mm. saying that um, apparently Cage has a property in Glastonbury, he lives about roughly four miles from him. He claims to have seen him in a kebab shop once. How true that is, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there was there was a, a Twitter trend going around a few weeks ago, basically what the weakest celebrity spots, the weakest celebrity interaction you've ever had. I remember this guy tweeted, um, he said, oh, I uh, sold some sausages to Nicolas Cage once. So naturally, <laughs> me being... I can't call myself a journalist or investigator here. I just tweeted, tell me everything that happened, uh, long story short. Apparently, Nicolas Cage is a fan of the Lincolnshire sausage. So, um, world exclusive right on this podcast. You heard it here first. I don't know if you've ever had an interaction that can top a Lincolnshire sausage to Nicolas Cage. No, no, actually, no, no. Normally, I've got a lot of random stories that, that can top stuff, but... On this occasion, nothing's going to beat Nicholas Cage loves a Lincolnshire sausage. I think the only one I ever had that's 
as week weaker i once walked past um legendary snooker player jimmy white in a in a pub toilet in southampton um he was enjoying a sunday dinner um that is as far as that court story goes it was a very nice sunday dinner i also had one um will jimmy white look on that memory fondly of walking past me in a toilet who knows who's to say who knows um, and apparently Tony Christie uh, lives in a town close to where I grew up in Litchfield, if that town name rings any bells. Um, apparently, with all those Amarillo profits, he just bought a nice little house. So, ah. And lightning from gladiators went to my rival school. Again, very tenuous link, because it doesn't concern me in any way, shape or form. But with a town as small as mine where I come from, you take what you can get. So cool. No, I mean they have not got many celebrity stories from where I'm from, sort of deepest, darkest um outskirts of Derbyshire. We sort of peaked with DH Lawrence and then nothing <laughs> since. So, so <laughs> nothing since DH Lawrence. I'm trying to wrap my brains. I think an Olympic medalist went to my high school. He was at one of the, the cycling tandem teams, but He's the one that no one knew the name of, even when we were winning gold medals in that sport. So, mm. um, again, our school can very loosely claim credit to that one. But in terms of behind-the-scenes stories, um, I did a little reading up on 8mm um, in the build-up to this episode. So apparently there was a lot of drama behind the scenes, non-cage-related. This was actually between the director, Joel Schumacher, and the writer, Andrew Kevin Walker. Uh, both of them have a lot of big films behind them. For Schumacher, The Lost Boys, uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Uh, for Andrew Kevin Walker, uh, he will went on to write the screenplay for Seven back in 1995, which got a BAFTA nomination for Best Original Screenplay. So apparently there's a load of issues between them and the studios. Uh, Walker took him ages to sell the screenplay to 8mm, but then they were concerned about the dark subject matter contained in the film. They basically asked him to tone it down, lighten the tone. He hoped when Joel Schumacher came on board that he would side with him, but he didn't. He sided with the studios like, I also think you should tone this down. Led to a highly publicised falling out between the two of them, and Walker would basically go on to disowned the film, uh, saying it was an inherently depressing experience. Uh, I don't know if he's even watched the film since. So it sort of begs the question I felt that um, even though this film is very dark and does have a number of um, quite uncomfortable scenes, it makes me wonder, what did they cut out? What did they change? What mm. would the... the original ending of being if that was changed as well i mean i i don't know if you would have any thoughts on how this would have if changed it's very silent because if that if this is the, the the light and fluffy version uh that, that we've seen yeah god knows what it would have been beforehand what the, the only i mean the main topic being about snuff films on the the cd underworld so they like at the time i would imagine uh, not dealt with in hollywood pretty risque but since then there's been a whole week's worth of hollyoaks lates <laughs> with that as the main storyline. Um, I only know this because my ex was a massive Hollyoaks fan and she was like nice. at 10 o'clock every night watching it and then I'd disappear into the next room. Uh, and to avoid it completely, she then 
completely misread the fact that I left because I don't want to know. And then tell me everything that happened in the episode, like I gave a toss. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was, there was a whole week's worth of, of snuff film plot line, presumably lifted from 8mm. Um, I think apparently as a as society, we've um, slightly eased up on snuff films. Um, obviously in, the, in the film, they spend most of it denying, yeah, snuff films don't exist, didn't happen, you didn't see it. But yeah, like you say, what was what was the fluffier version of this? What was the darker version, if we got the fluffy version, I should say? Um, I mean, as soon as I read the synopsis for this, the, the plot description, my first thought was, well, this isn't going to end well. This is going to be an awful experience for more than likely Nicolas Cage. Um, I had some feelings throughout the film that he was probably going to die or cheat on his wife there seemed to be some hints about that but mm. um i think understandably he just got progressively angrier so i, mm. I don't know if, if you thought his character was going to go in a in a, a different way well but there was there was heavily hinted when he was um investigating whilst um talking to marianne's mum um, because it, it struck me that she was like uber, uber lonely uh, throughout the whole thing. And she might as well have had um, air traffic lights going up her legs uh, at one point. Uh, so how many times did she pour him a drink to get him to stay and he refused uh, and even re yeah. refused an offer of dinner? So I thought she's going to dry hump him any minute. Um, so that yeah. it's that there's, there's a feeling that that was hinted at and there's a feeling that he... Um, his character would go quite far in terms to get to the bottom of um, a uh, case. Uh, so there's, there, there was an inkling, a hint of just how far is he going to take this? What is he going to do? Is he going to get his kit off? <laughs> yeah, I picked up on the same thing. I mean, maybe five minutes or so into the film, when he's come back from another case, his wife asks him, say, oh, have you been, you've been smoking? He's like, no, I've not been smoking. I've not been smoking. And then a minute later, he takes the case that mm. leads to the film and he's smoking. So very early on, there's like, well, there's some distrust here. There's a few cracks in this relationship. There's um, something underlying that we're not quite seeing. Is he sort of the father and husband's we think he might be. And then, as you said, he meets uh, the mother. And obviously, it's very clear that she's lonely. No one's really helped her. No one's been interested in the case. Mm -hmm. And when I think maybe the 17th time she poured him a drink in the film, mm -hmm. um, I've, he'd lingered for a little bit. And I was like, oh, OK, well, th this is going where I, I suspected it was going to go. And <clears> then he leaves, which, I mean, I suppose credit to the character for sticking to the case and the facts but um just seems like i don't know if it was intentional like how they say snuff films don't exist it was an intentional character ploy to um mm. have him make it seem like he's going to go down this darker path and he other than buying about a hundred dollars worth of porn mags and rifling through black market car boot sales of uh of nonsense he he doesn't <laughs> He doesn't really ever take that step to the dark side that I thought he was going to take. It was it was interesting how it was um, well brilliantly played, possibly because the script was reined in. Uh, there was it was like heavy subtext of like you felt some tension, 
uh, and it was implied it was um what was going on in your head of what he may or may not do was actually more tense than if he actually went through and did something like cheat on his wife um which is is quite subtle for saying other areas in the film the imagery smacks you around the face uh <laughs> like yes. Like, for example, when they are delving into the, the, the seedy side and they're in New York and they just happen to walk through a meat market. Um, so yes. yeah. not, not so subtle, like, yeah, okay, Mr. Director, I, I see what you're doing here. Or in the, not to jump ahead too much, a, a climactic scene, which may or may not involve death, taking place in a graveyard. Again, not too subtle. Um, so yeah, yeah, you see what I'm saying? Considering that there was, it, it was either like um, to turn to two or turned up to 11. Yeah, there was no real in-between. It was either let's imply something or let's punch you in the throat until you yield. This is how mm. on the nose we're going to have it. I mean, when they showed some of the clips and from what I read, some of the pornographic tapes that they watch were of actual films that I think they could show clips of or they bought the rights to. Um, and they're going into various underground lairs with um, surprisingly tidy stalls, I thought, considering the <laughs> content. Um, when they're actually watching stuff, there's um, there's one clip of a woman being assaulted and then she's getting another one where she's getting attached to the machete. And I was like, Oh, okay, so we are gonna we are gonna see some stuff. We are gonna go to some darker areas. Um, but I think then we get that sort of pullback and um Hawkeye Wells, he says, Oh, that's that's the same woman. That's uh it it, it didn't happen, it didn't happen at mm. all. So um it's it sort of still makes me question now, sort of, you know, how much of it was real as well. What what we were seeing is a number of times I thought um on his quest to discover the girl in the film when he's hired by the uh, the, the wealthy family. Um, I was questioning, like, is this in his head? Is this really happening? Um, is this going to take some twist and be some paranoid psychological drama? Um, but it's, I think, I think some of it played it a lot, maybe for lack of a better term, a lot straighter than I was expecting as well. It was mm. a lot more direct, um, Mm. When we when we sort of got down to to the nitty gritty of it, but I couldn't help but think for all of it. Poor Mrs. Christian, poor Mrs. Mm. Christian. I mean, what uh, what a thing to find out. Now, Mrs. Christian is a character who hires Cage's character to get the the bottom of um, this film. They found in her late husband's belongings. Um, throughout the whole film, uh, she's just like, what what has happened? And she's very receptive to information mm. but what what a poor character to be like just waiting for What's, this information yeah i mean and, and a woman of, of that age and, and that infirm seems to take the whole concept of snuff films quite well i i would think just looking at her and, and playing with stereotypes as the film would do she'd be of that snuff what <laughs> what's a snuff film dear yeah so, is it a is it a mucky film oh Oh, what goes? Oh, what goes on? It they don't. They, <laughs> oh, oh, that's oh, my, don't tell me anymore. So she sent kind of, kind of like really clued up and surprisingly 
um, sharp on all of this. Uh, also, in, in terms of her late husband, whose um, portrait looked like a really bad oil painting of um, Derek Jacobi. I don't know if you thought that, uh, but I was kind of expecting flashbacks yeah. with Derek Jacobi suddenly still appear because they're of a similar age. At what stage of wealth do you get a safe that's built into the wall? Because that seems question. to happen. That happens with a lot of these films where there's a wealthy person who has a safe built into the wall behind a picture that comes out like a door. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's my aspiration in life, to get to the stage where I've got a wall safe filled full of stuff. No snuff films, but, you know, <laughs> like big wads of cash and stocks and bonds, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, if just the uh, just the oil painting of uh, Derek Jacobi, that'll be one box ticked. If I can mm. then have a safe behind it, um, and I'd like, I think I'll just build up for my family that it's full of secrets. And then never tell them what that is. But then it's just going to be poorly photoshopped pictures of me and uh, Nicholas Cage. And then they'll be like, "Oh yeah, well, m- makes sense." And I want that to be my legacy, disappointing my family until the very end. Just, just leave a handwritten note in an envelope saying I was the one that put that invitation through his door in his house in Bath. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe if I can just build up a bunch of clues and get mm. them posted to the actual Nicolas Cage, uh, some kind of <laughs> elaborate international uh, sort of mystery game, um, which basically just culminates in me asking him for an autograph. Which if, sure. we do, if we do get rich, we have just revealed on a podcast where we're hiding all of our loot. It's not behind the picture of Derek Jacobi. Um, mm-hmm. If the FBI, if you're listening, uh, I'm sure you've got I'm sure you've got better things to do. I'm sure there's still <laughs> some votes that need counting. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it'd be it'd be very interesting all the same. Um, I think just on a side note, I'd read as well about this film that, again, taking into consideration um, the content and all the edits that went into it. Allegedly, this was originally intended for a Christmas release in 1998. What a film to come out in December! Uh, any wow. year. Okay. Uh, any year. That would that would really take um, take Die Hard's crown. <laughs> is, is it a Christmas film? Is it not a Christmas film? Um, if maybe if even one of the snuff clips, one of the the people would be wearing a Christmas hat, like you just think, right? Okay, there it is. Or a, or a bad Santa. Yeah, on the on the echelon of Christmas films, it's uh, you know your your Home Alones, your Bad Santas, Die Hard, Eight yeah. Millimeter, Gather Round the uh, the Netflix Christmas Fire, Whack yeah, Eight the, Millimeter, or if, lovely. Or, or if the if the, if the dude with the uh, the the gimp mask and the tattoo, if he had the big white beard as well, over the gimp mask. <laughs> a lot of avenue, a lot of avenues that they could have gone down. Hmm. Um, I think it eventually came out in February or. March of 99 because they had to uh, edit it down to secure an R rating, uh, satisfy the Motion Picture Association. I think I'd read that they uh, initially had four or five scenes in a row depicting something graphic, which you're not allowed to do. Um, So credit to the writer. He had a vision and he wanted that to come to fruition. So are you describing how the the, the film board in America give ratings. It sounds like that their methods and techniques sound very similar to recent tier ratings that have been going on for, for COVID hit towns. Because uh, yeah. it sounds like, okay, you can have that, 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 but not that because that might turn people. But what about the first four scenes? 
that's a bit like kind of like you can go out but not uh, come back at 10. Like, okay yeah so COVID's not going to get me before 10 is it no <laughs> yeah it's just like you can you can stay up till 10 but not 10 past one and in that one minute you can have three snuff clips but don't push it to four but do push it mm. to four but we'll need to see it first for you know film reasons the mask um, goes over your nose and make sure it's leather <laughs> well at least uh the mask guy i'm trying to think his name what was it uh the machine yeah machine. the mask guy i mean mm. what a, what what a thing i mean one of my and i think it's a weird phrase to say to have a favorite sequence in this film <laughs> considering the subject mm. but sort of skipping ahead to the end um when cage's character has finally tracked down the machine i thought when he was going through uh machine's house or should we say his normal name george anthony higgins just for the purpose of killing him at that point when it just sort of had that single camera shot just following him up the stairs and through the house when it was almost at this point it just became real horror almost i thought that was really great i thought that's when i felt maybe the, the most tense um in the film mm. when he was when he was looking for the machine um Again, a hard press to say. I don't know if you had a, a favourite sequence. Again, very difficult to say favourite, taking the subject matter into consideration. But uh, yeah, um, I mean, the um, um, being more of a sitcom aficionado though uh, than a film buff, uh, within the opening twenty-five minutes, when um, the old woman who gives him the case is revealed, is wheeled in. Uh, the first thing I said out loud was, "She was in Frasier." <laughs> um so yeah so she was in a uh she was in an episode of fraser in the second season um because you can't mistake her uh uniquely quivering old woman voice uh, <laughs> it's, it's very distinctive very distinctive um whacking phoenix's scenes are quite like possibly in all the things i've seen him in weirdly this is his least kooky wow this this phoenix it, it, it strikes me that this was his most i mean he was by no means a conventional character who's no means portraying somebody who was uh, very, very squeaky clean and normal, but it was the most down to earth character I've seen in play. Yeah, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix for me, um, and I mean, I'll say I've not seen all of his films. That's another podcast altogether. Um, but I, he's one of those actors for me, I find it very difficult not to like him in anything that he does. Um, I feel like maybe you're one of the few people who actually liked Joker recently. I know a lot of people take issue with it no, here and it. there. I loved it. Um, but I thought Joker was a brilliant film. Um, I thought he was great in this as well. I mean, from when we first meet him, it's, it's yeah, it's about 25, 30 minutes in or so, maybe a bit later on. Um, and he he greets us <laughs> with a line as he greets uh, Nicholas Cage's character with Sir, can I interest you in a battery-operated vagina? Um, I thought, right, there's the levity I need in this I, film. So having worked in retail and having had to upsell clients who you are running through the till, that did that did resonate with me. <laughs> I mean, dare I ask what retail you've worked in when that line resonates? Just not, not a battery-operated vagina. Um, the Trying to upsell a chocolate orange. That was... That was it. I swear that could be used for sauciness, but that's up to you. Whatever, whatever <laughs> goes on between the uh, chocolate orange between closed doors, nothing to do with me. Hey, uh, but no. that's that's your own business. Chocolate Absolutely. orange is your own business. Uh, so, whacking Phoenix for the um, well, yeah, for for the 
I guess the a bit of the comedy relief of it all with the battery operated vagina. Uh, the and the standoff scene in the warehouse towards the end within the last half hour felt very Tarantino esque as well. Yes. That that scene particularly um, particularly struck me, particularly when um, uh, the the CD porn boss who were straight out of the, the stereotype book of, okay, how should we dress this seedy porn boss? Hmm, yes, uh, greasy yeah. hair, slick back, handlebar moustache, and a, uh, a velvet tracksuit. How can, where can you get a velvet tracksuit? I've never seen one for sale anywhere, but it always seems to be, I think Biff Tannen wore one in Back to the Future too. Yes. <laughs> in, the, um, in the dystopian Hill Valley. Yeah, there's um, a penthouse suite mm, with the so, almanac. So, yeah, so sort of sleazy guys tend to wear these sort of things. But no, the, the, and the part where he was dying and almost lamenting that this was how he was going to die was was interesting. Yeah, that was um, a very sudden death. And uh, Peter uh, Stromar, I believe the name is, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, playing the, um, well, the... the t- there's a lot of villains. The top tier <coughs> villain, maybe, in comparison to the machine, um, with the name, of course, uh, Dino uh, Dino Velvet, because of course that's his name. Of course, mm-hmm. he's called Dino Velvet. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, there was a few other people considered for that role as well. Uh, we had Eric Roberts, Tommy Lee Jones, James Woods, uh, Charles Dance, Rutger Hauer, and Willem Dafoe, all considered for Dino Velvet. Um, I think Dafoe. Could have been a good fit in there. It's a, something about him. He's just got that this, villainous there, face. There seems to be a very, a very slight, not a Geiger counter of uh, weird, could possibly be European um, sort of look and feel about all those people mentioned. I know, I know, Eric Roberts once played the master in Doctor Who. Oh, yeah on on the one off on the one off TV movie. Oh yeah, the ninety six. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, there's a little trivia for he falls through the wormhole. Then he ends up as a a porn sleaze, uh, the head of a porn empire of sleaze. What a what a transition into infamy. That and that I would like to see um, is how the master would be revealed in an episode as well. I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past him. Well, they had that um, uh, series finale where um, John Sims master returned and he had the prosthetics which he took off which hands up it actually fooled me i mm, I, thought, I, mean. I didn't see it coming but if that's what it was like uh like this is my battery operated vagina doctor now that would be the kind of smut <laughs> <laughs> that would take that would take my interest i suppose speaking of actors for roles as well um before cage got the role it looked like russell crowe was sort of uh, very close to getting the role of wells in this um, so from my notes, it agreed to do the film, but at this, at this point, and I suppose it's important to remember in the context of Cage's career as well. He was obviously coming off the award wins in 95. He had the sort of great strip of four films where we had, uh, leaving Las Vegas, the rock con air face off. Uh, I mean, in terms of a streak of four films, I think it's hard, hard pressed to find another actor who's got such a successful streak like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cage's star was stratospheric at this point. He was one of the biggest stars in the world, bar none. So Russell Crowe almost had it, but then Cage's agent called uh, Joel Schumacher and said, Cage wants in. 
so the suits that Sony agreed, it was basically the difference between a, uh, a gritty sort of handheld camera type affair with Crow versus a big budget production that Cage could bring. So um, mm. obviously they turned to Cage, but yeah, I'd be interested to see if this would have worked uh, differently or even better if the original vision they had for Crow um, had gone ahead as well. It'd be an interesting angle if they'd gone more handheld with it, like the L8 millimeter suggests. Less at the box office. Uh, Quite at possibly. The time, at the time, it would, it would have been unheard of. Um, just just reviewing my notes as well, let's, let's talk about the, the unsung uh, member of the cast, Windows 98. <laughs> which which featured heavily. Yeah. Um, now, if there's one thing that's going to date something, it's the tech. In it. <laughs> and, and in 1999, the, the tech that was being used when he was like going trawling through the missing persons files and, and his surveillance, um, it just, I mean, the last sort of like 21 years worth of technological advancement has been so great compared to any other time in history. Mm-hmm. Tapping into somebody's phone using a Sony dictaphone, which he was then rewinding. So you get the, <laughs> you get the rewinding sound effect. Of, He's onto us. Wrong, too far. Um, and, and yeah, and Windows 98, I forgot that the Windows, all the Windows you had open were that funny grey colour, or you could customise it to a blue strip at the top if you wanted to. Yeah, if you wanted to look like you had money and impress your friends, you changed it to the blue strip. Mm. Um, but that, that, that was a point, actually. I had actually forgotten about that. Obviously, he does a lot of digging trying to find the girl in the initial snuff film. Um, and then it was almost some weird nostalgic thing. I don't know if you've seen the meme of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the yellow shirt just pointing at the TV. That was um, basically me when I saw Windows 98. And it's like, I remember that. That was slow. Ha ha, how times change. Mm. I love, sure. how, I love how dedicated he was as well. There was no scenes in any of the montages of him getting a bit bored and going on Minesweeper. <laughs> I mean, a lesser man, a lesser uh, private mm. investigator would have had a Minesweep break. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no smartphones and no apps. He couldn't have just been like uh, wasting time on a, you know, like one of the app games. But no, no, it, I'd have gone for some Minesweeper, possibly even Solitaire as well. Yeah, a cheeky, a cheeky solitaire minesweeper. And mm. to this day, I question: Has anyone beaten Minesweeper? Did anyone crack it? Did anyone really know what Minesweeper was? No. <laughs> Even now, twenty years later, I'm like, did did Minesweeper exist, or was that just a collective hallucination from early Windows radiation uh, that we're all suffering ah, with now? One of one of the first conspiracy theories to feature Bill Gates. But by no means the last. And no. isn't he isn't he planting chips in people with COVID vaccine now? Isn't that the latest gate? If it's true, bring it on. I'll be first in the queue. I wanna be um I wanna be a cyborg. <laughs> well, I mean, I like many people, my diary's wide open for 2020. So let's get this train rolling. Let's see how big a bin fire we can make this year. 2021, also not looking that great at the minute. So, you know, wheel it out, vaccine man. Go on. <laughs> Not hedging my bets, and I mean, I—the only window of hope I had was crashed when I spent all all day Thursday this week trying to get a PS5 and failing miserably. So, throw Ouch. me into the abyss. Throw me into the abyss, as far as I'm concerned. But I think, as well, when he was 
And again, unless this was just another hallucination I had, when he was doing all of that digging and finding out the specific type of film that they used, I'm sure at one point he was wearing a turtleneck as well, which I ah. thought, right, now ah, I know. Now tactical I know turtleneck. Yes. The tactical turtle, um, which at that point I was like, okay, now I know he is committed to finding this girl. Because it seemed a few times he was going to give up, pack it all up, but just called up uh, Mrs. Christian, asked for another advance on his pay. And it was, it was that simple back then. He just got some money wired. Mm. Which it, it makes me kind of think um, the world of private investigating, very, very sexy, very glamorous. But then you get a case like this and think, I mean, I'll stick to, uh, you know, potentially missing chihuahuas and Peggy Sue got married as opposed to mm. snuff films in 8mm. I think... <laughs> I think that's my upper limit of what I'm going to look for. That's going missing. Um, mm. If you've ever, if you've ever dreamed of private investigation yourself, can't can't say as I have. Uh, and and this film's done nothing to ignite that passion. It's it, <laughs> unsurprising. It is it, it, it's, it's dulled it back a bit. Um, uh, one thing that struck me. Uh, um, we're talking about um, stereotypes with, with characters, like we said about the porn boss being a stereotype porn boss. Mm-hmm. Um, then the the lawyer um, yes. being a very stereotyped, untrustworthy lawyer. He had like, the expensive suit, looks like he was possibly wearing a wig. Not a very convincing one either. Yeah. Uh, and, and quivering a bit because he was a bit out of his depth. Um, so there was there was that. And also... The, the henchman, the, the second in command, I think that was James Gandolfini, was it? Yes, yes, it was, yeah. yeah. Henchmen who were a bit seedy, I just think, wouldn't it have more impact in a film if they were completely the opposite of the stereotype? Like, say, if, if the porn boss was clean-cut, if he was in a very expensive-looking suit, if he was well-spoken, never touched drugs or drink, wouldn't that be more kind of sadistic and, and seedy if he did have that side to him. Or likewise, yeah. if if like the James Gandolfini character was also well-spoken and thin and, and not grubby looking at all. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting point. I think, as you say, a lot of the, um, the hierarchy of scumbags very much played to type and, in a sense, how I imagine someone in that industry would act. Um, uh, the attorney, I think it was like Longdale, Daniel Longdale, he couldn't help but feel if this was an Agatha Christie episode of Poirot and mm. Hercule had gone in there, he would have clocked Longdale at a, at a thousand yards. He would have clocked him straight away. It was like, well, it's clearly you. Even Columbo would have clocked him. He would have to have proved it first. Mm. Dare I say, dare I imagine, if we recast um, Columbo in 8mm, now there's a dark episode for the box set. That, um, that would be more of a crossover than that episode that Billy Connolly did. Was he in a, an episode of... Billy Connolly did an episode of Columbo. N- well, my Seriously. mind's just been blown. Have you ever gone down a, a black hole of Wikipedia where you're clicking links, links and links? I can't remember what took me to this, but right. it was one of the later episodes. I mean, Columbo was still being filmed and still being made in the 90s. Yeah, um, went on for so a long one, time. One of the late, I think it ran for like 20 years, but they only had like, um, they made like three movies that were made for TV a year. It wasn't like traditional seasons. So yeah, Billy Connolly was in an episode in the early 90s. Well, my mind has just been 
loan. Um, so that's what I'm researching after after this episode. <laughs> Genuinely incredible. But yeah, as as you said, if Dino Velvet was one of those people who, um, dare I say, it, with Dino Velvet um, and James Gandolfini's character, both incredible actors in their own right. Don't get me wrong, but I think with mm. what they had here, it was very much uh, yeah. You see the you scripted that way, play it that way, and. Uh, they did a good job, don't get me mm. wrong. They did great with what they had, but uh, wasn't exactly nuanced. Um, and I think even with the um, the reveal of the reasoning as to why they were doing it as well, and I'm, and I, and I'm not sure if this is supposed to feed into the, the, the narrative, the vibe of this film, when... When basically the question, and especially with the machine at the end, when Cage's character finally has the upper hand and he sort of basically finished him off, he's like, why did you do this? And it was basically, uh, because I can, because I wanted to. And he's like, yeah, it's like, I'm just a normal guy. Um, just felt like murdering people. And it's like, oh, um, hmm. okay, well, I guess we know. But at the end of the film, I, I, I guess... I don't know if I was if I was looking for something more, but maybe that's a thing that the film is saying. There are unfortunately bad people like this out there. Mm-hmm. This is a thing that happens. The world mm-hmm. is a bad place. There's no rhyme or reason for a lot of the things, um, and that was kind of my takeaway. It's like life is and can be shit. It's how you deal with it. Um, I don't know if that's how you took sort of the or your perception of the end of the film over. Yeah, it's I, I mean even even the uh uh, uh the, the the body in the masks reveal and um the um the the big dialogue. I mean if you're if you're if you're threatened with certain death, if Nicolas Cage is about to beat you to death, you don't then start monologuing. You would either pick up the knife or leg it, I think. Um <laughs> yeah. so you wouldn't then just start going you may be looking at me and thinking all of these things, but let me assure you, I was never abused. I had a great upbringing. My parents loved me. Crazy, right? I'm a murderer. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so uh, again, going back to the how they can play things so subtly in one scene where he's in the kitchen with the the lonely mum of the uh, the girl that went missing, and then to the end of this scene, it was just kind of like. Okay, we're wrapping up in three days. Let's just let's just get this over and done with, shall we? Do you want nuance? How much will that cost? Uh, no, no, we're over budget. We can't afford any nuance. Uh, <laughs> what about subtlety? Oh, I don't know. That's are we insured for subtlety? No, no. Um, c- yeah, I've got a flight, but my holidays in two days. Can we just get this done? Can we just yeah. get this done? Wrap it up. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I felt like we, you know, we, we, we were slowly building. We were like we've seen. Cage's character is getting more and more frustrated because they just couldn't get an answer. Um, mm. Then we get to the the confrontation, as you said earlier, in the warehouse at the end where he's handcuffed. Uh, Max California is on effectively a spinning prize board getting crossbow bolts shot at him. Uh, unfortunately, there was no caravan or speedboat to be won, circa bullseye. Um, just the opportunity to uh, be in a film with the machine, unfortunately. Mm. Um, it was... In a way, expected, but at the same time, I think because we were having that slow build to get to the end, I couldn't help but feel a little disappointed. I don't know if I was supposed if that was the thing you're supposed to be disappointed because there are no answers to something like this. 
um, which is in my head the way I sort of have to jam it together to sort of make it make sense. Um, this is what they wanted. You have to make something like this make sense because there is no rhyme or reason to this world. Um, so come away with it a bit, a bit affected, I guess. Um, I suppose the other thing I was sad about is that Max California got killed. That was a shame. Mm. He was that he was that character. Who's like, oh, but I liked him. Yeah, uh, if if they had kept him alive, sequel. Well, hey. there was actually a sequel, um, but obviously not starring any of the the, the main cast. Um, this was about six years later. A director video sequel, which already tells you everything you need to know. Okay. Um, so he actually had zero connection to Eight Millimeter. <laughs> as it was originally titled The Velvet Side of Hell. Um, and then Sony picked up the rights, retitled it 8mm2 because reasons. Um, and just like the ending of this film, make it make sense, basically. So like that one sort of died off. Um, this one, I mean, this film sort of, um, I can I can see now why this would have a cult appeal to it, I think in the same way that... Um, Seven still has an appeal many years later. I can definitely understand why people would have been uh, turned off from this film, if that's even the right phrase to use. But I, it's a film, even though it was poorly received at the time, only 21% on Rotten Tomatoes, if you take that thing as gospel. Mm. Um, I, th- I think I would have um, maybe not as been as harsh to it. I think it deserves a bit more... Um, I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people wrote it off to be. Um, did make 97 million internationally as well, so more than double its initial bullet, uh, budget of 40 million. But I think this is a film that it's difficult to watch. There are difficult scenes in mm. it. Um, you can't really go into it expecting answers. Again, I, th- I feel personally that's by design. Um, but I, th- I think this is, uh, as Max California's character says, um, about dancing with the devil. Um, so you dance with the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. So mm. I suppose by the end of this, do you feel that the devil has changed you, Alex Ling? Well, I was a seedy little man before this film, so I don't <laughs> think I've I, it changed me that much. I I, I mean, I went... I went into this film with with sort of zero expectations uh, and sort of enjoyed the ride. Um, so you know, if you know that scene in the second Austin Powers film where he's about to go back to the past and he's talking to Basil and going, "But if I go back to the past, then presumably I can meet my previous self. And then what if I say something? Oh, do, oh dear, I've gone cross-eyed." And he just says to him, <laughs> "Yeah, my advice is that you don't think too deeply and just enjoy yourself." And, and that's that's how I went about it with this film initially. Um, the more you do think uh, too deeply about it, you just think, hang on, that bit's crap. But I just just feel like switching off that overly analytic part of my brain. I just in, enjoyed the, the, the two hours of it. Um, yeah. um, but more, more so probably from a watching it 21 years after it was made. Possibly yeah. if I'd gone to the cinema at the time, I'd just think, nah. Uh, but but now I enjoyed the oh my god, don't the Joker look young? <laughs> uh, uh, that element, and also like oh Windows ninety eight. Um, so 
they they sort of provided some some sort of like light relief from the gore and the heavy elements but over time those heavier elements have been normalized in other films and tv series i don't want to mention hollyoaks again <laughs> or maybe we'll never have to mention hollyoaks again not. But... hopefully not <laughs> but i mean like i said i thought i thought the acting was solid throughout i mean yeah um this is something i mentioned a lot there are uh, with Nicolas Cage especially, um, there are two categories of film. I think there are Nicolas Cage films and there are films Nicolas Cage is in. Uh, this is the latter for me. I thought he was um, very grounded throughout, didn't overact. I think sometimes that speaks to the director when you've got a good script and you rein him in. Um, mm-hmm. I thought um, Joaquin Phoenix was brilliant as Max California, but again, mm-hmm. I, I'd like him in pretty much everything he's in. Um, mm. Also, side note there, apparently, if it wasn't uh, Joaquin, it was going to be Mark Wahlberg for Max California. So mm. that could have been that. Um, and if it wasn't Nicolas Cage, it was either going to be Bruce Willis, Val Kilmer, Charlie Sheen, John Travolta, Mel Gibson, or Nick Nolte as, a, as the world's there. There's a decade spanning list. Yeah, it's it's. I find it quite interesting sometimes to find um, not just like the the who could have in Nicolas Cage films, but uh, there's a whole other conversation about films that he um, either turned down or roles that he didn't get because there is a perception that sometimes you give him a script, he's like, "Don't need to read it. I'm in. Where do I sign?" Um, obviously, the whirlwind. As as you may be aware, we very nearly got Nick Cage as Superman. Um, he was not aware of that. I can see that. Well, um, so Kevin Smith, um, he's sort of actor, writer, director. There was going to be a film. I think it was uh, the death of Superman. There's a big documentary about it, which um, still need to seek out myself. But they'd done the costume fittings. They'd done like sort of the promo shots. Uh, you can find the full script online. Um, for whatever reason fell through i think tim burton was supposed to direct it uh, but it was a slimmer superman it was nicholas cage with long almost con air hairstyle um fascinating when i told my partner um i was like did you know nicholas cage was nearly superman she looked me dead in the eye as if i just wished death upon her entire family she's like <laughs> that's one of the most offensive things you've ever said no that's not possible and i was like yeah i showed her the picture disbelief sheer disbelief but i suppose we hold hope now with you get a lot of and this is a different superhero tangents so i'll try and rein myself in but um with all multiverses that they're opening now they seem to move in towards in marvel potentially dc has been openly embracing other verses the tv series and films um maybe we'll see cage as superman in some format there he voiced a cartoon Superman in the cartoon movie, sort of Teen Titans Go, the movie. So that's the closest nod we've had in about 20, 30 years to seeing mm. Cage as Superman. Um, two of my other favourites is that he was very nearly Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, which for Lord of the Rings fans, that induces uh, a number of feelings. And he was almost very nearly Shrek as well. Wow, would he have played it as Scottish? This is the question. This is the question. I feel that was probably a choice uh, by Mike Myers to go Scottish, but I suppose a lot of animated characters, they animate parts of the facial features, sort of capture the movement. 
I think this was at a time when Nicolas Cage was a lot more conscious, being a family man at the time, of how he was perceived in the public mm. eye, which is why he did a lot more films like National Treasure um, to sort of help, dare I say, soften his image, make him more family-friendly. Um, mm. But then you can always say Nicolas Cage, National Treasure, uh, Nicolas Cage's Disney-approved, which is one of my favourite arguments to the anti-cagers out there. Are you, are you Disney approved? Uh, no, didn't think so. Didn't think so. <laughs> um, like in here, we get Cage in a lot of segments. We get family friendly Cage. We get the more supernatural Cage or stuff like Ghost Rider. With Peggy mm -hmm. Sue, we had a lot of drama, romantic Cage. And in the mid 90s, mm -hmm. we had action hero Cage. Now he's doing a lot more sort of like meta horror stuff with films like Mandy, Color Out Space. Uh, he's got Willy's Wonderland coming up where he fights uh, animatronic. Um, sort of arcadey circus animals, like an animatronic weasel and gorilla. So you know I'm excited for that to come out. Interesting. Interesting. It is. This, is, this is starting to sound sort of like rejected films that you hear about in Bojack Horseman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think me describing it, I think, well, I think you've just had a bad dream. I think you need more <laughs> sleep. <laughs> um. Like I say, uh, three things certain in life, death, taxes, and Nicolas Cage. Long may he reign. May he keep pumping out films. But I suppose for you, by your own admission, you're more of a sitcom, half-hour chunk kind of guy. Taking 8mm into account, and with two of the films, Face Off and Peggy Sue, you've seen, uh, would this, looking at Cage's performance solely, would this film, on its own merits, inspire you to uh, seek out more Cage? And would that change your view on him as an actor? Uh, yeah, I think definitely um, seek out more Cage and watch more. Uh, probably breaking them up into half-hour chunks, um, <laughs> just just because of my own really short attention span. No, no, no disrespect to the Cage. Um, my my opinion of him as an actor has not changed. I mean, I enjoyed the films that I've seen him in. Um, leaving Las Vegas, I'd say Rob was my favourite of the ones that I have seen. Um, no, I think he's, he's, he's a solid actor and a solid performer. And so, yeah, I would, I would inspire me to seek out more, certainly. Wonderful stuff. Well, as we come to an end of the discussion on 8mm, I think just like the film itself, some of the answers in life, you won't always get the answers to the questions that you have. Sometimes you will be let down. Sometimes you will be disappointed. But if there's one constant through the 80s, as we go into the 2020s and beyond, it's that Nicolas Cage will keep on giving you the gift, the gift of Cage. And I hope in some way that's inspired you, the listener. It's inspired you, Alex Leem, to uh, give yourself to our Lord and Saviour, Nicolas Cage Senpai, because... Uh, Amen. <laughs> hallelujah to the Cage Meister himself. Um, but that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Cage Rage a Nicolas Cage podcast. I once again thank Alex Lee for joining me on the journey. Uh, Alex, where can we find you on the uh, on the socials? Uh, Twitter at Alex Leem, Facebook at Alex Leem Stand Up, and just search for my name on YouTube. I'm not important enough yet to have a custom URL. <laughs> but you can also find uh, some regular shows, Improv Provocateur. Um, yes. Which is if you enjoyed Whose Line Is It Anyway, and let's be honest, which of us didn't, you will yeah. love Improv 
provocateur. So please go and check that out. It's massively ripped off from Who's Line, is it anyway? So of course you'll enjoy it. Uh, an audience member in um, Edinburgh last year, 2019, said, ah, that's just like Who's Line, but like the Aldi version. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, and also a regular um, streaming panel show every Sunday nights at half past eight called Awkward Question Time. So find me on the above mentioned socials. Lovely. Alex Leem, Improv Provocateur, Awkward Question Time. Thank you once again for spending a little bit of your time with me. But until then, the cage train rolls on. We will catch you same cage time, same cage channel next week. So until then, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.